Hello everyone, my name is Frederick Gieschen and the following is my conversation with Dominique Miel, the author of the book Damsel in Distressed and a former partner and senior portfolio manager at Canyon Capital, a large credit and distressed hedge fund. Please keep in mind that none of the following is investment advice. I'm not your fiduciary, always do your own research. And with that, please enjoy my conversation with Dominique. Dominique, thank you so much for joining me today. I really enjoyed the book and I'm really grateful that you're taking the time to um, talk about it with me. And thank you for I, having me. Of course. And I felt like we should just kick it off with if you could give a little bit of your background and how you ended up in the world of hedge funds and as a partner at, at Canyon. Sure. It was uh, fairly serendipitous, I would say, which is something I always say as a as a start because I feel like the usual image of a hedge fund manager is one where the protagonist was called very early to enter Wall Street and start trading when he, which usually a he, was five years old or something along those lines or started a hedge fund while he was still in college. That's the storyline that the media and the books really like. And that was certainly not mine. I came to I came to a hedge funds quite late. I did have as a first job, a finance job in New York, not particularly because I was interested in finance. In fact, I wasn't at all. But I was born and, and uh, raised in Paris, in France, and you and I were just talking about the the will, the passion to see the world, and that's what I wanted to do. So I got a job in New York, not because it was in finance, but because I wanted to move, and New York seemed like a fun place to live. I was a banker at a commercial bank and an investment, investment bank for a couple of years. Then I went to business school, and that's where, after a few classes in portfolio management and risk management, I realized that was a job that I was very interested in. I interviewed with a little firm called Canyon Capital back in 98. It had 500 million in assets and less than 10 people. And and that was it. That's where I spent the next 20 years. That was my one and only job after business school until I retired. Right. What I really enjoyed about your book, and I guess your career maybe in, in distress as a whole, is you always end up where there is a, a crisis or there's a lot of action kind of go from from event to event. And it seems to me you were sort of thrown right into the into the deep end with your first trade. So you arrive at, at Canyon and there's this sort of the, the telecom bust is about to happen. So tell me about WorldCom and, and that first trade you were involved in. Welcome was not the first trade, but it was certainly the first large loss that happened, which, you know, in a way is a first trade that uh, that that really is seared in your mind, I suppose, for every investor. In 2001-2002, the dot-com bubble burst, which was mostly the bubble of a of the stock market, of the internet stock market. And that didn't really concern Canyon much because we tended not to invest in, in stocks, certainly not high-flying stocks. But shortly on the heel of that crisis came the telecom crisis. And that was very much a concern of ours because the the telecom boom, particularly the internet providers, the wireless providers, the wireless towers were all companies that were 
largely financed with debt. And I should have said that Canyon had a root in junk bonds and leveraged bonds and leveraged loans. And that's certainly what I did mostly is, is trade what we used to call junk bonds and restructuring and distressed. So the telecom crisis was, was uh, enormous. It was a, a very large scale debacle in the, in the telecom industry, ranging from large to small, mature to, to growing companies. And most of them had very large capital structures and there were lots and lots of bankruptcies. In addition to that, we were talking about a period where there were quite a few fraudulent companies that led to spectacular bankruptcies. So Welcome was one, Enron was another, Tyco, Conseco. I mean, you, the, the, this was before SOX. So before the CEO, the CFO had to uh, certify their their financials, and certainly that led to quite a few shenanigans. Welcome was a, a large telecom company, lots of bonds growing at phenomenal rate. I bought bonds that were slated to mature a few months uh, later, so you know at a fairly high dollar price. And one day they, the press release came out that the SEC was was inquiring their accounting. And it was shortly followed by the, I believe, it, if, if I remember correctly, it was the company itself that said that they had committed uh, a fraud of several billion dollars in magnitude and they had to file. And my bonds dropped from whatever, 96 on the cents on the, on the dollar to 20. So that will be an event that you, that you remember when I, that happens. I bet. So, so you're in that moment there's there's bad news the bonds dropped you're already sort of on, under fire and in the in the book you had this interesting quote where you said you have this conviction that risk tolerance is a is a skill and to some extent can be learned so i'm just curious when you put yourself into your your mind what was that situation like and maybe how is it different what was your reaction like then and how do you think about it now with kind of a, a career and, and having this well, back seen this? then i i just wanted to die i mean <laughs> i just wanted i just wanted call, to call my mom <laughs> that's, that's how painful it is. I mean, it, it really is. I felt ashamed. I felt stupid. I felt like I wanted to disappear and just, you know, go gardening or, or basket weaving for a profession. And of course, you can't do that, A, because it's, you know, that would, it's a question of fortitude, right? You were hired to do a job, so you can't just quit when you lose money. Although it's, I suppose it would be an option, but that was certainly not mine. So after the initial reaction of feeling like a complete idiot, you just have to reassess the situation. You have to re-underwrite your position. And of course, particularly when you're a junior analyst, you don't do that alone. The, the partners were there to help and they had the experience. They knew Welcome and at least part of, they, they knew very well part of the company called MCI, which was a company that Welcome had acquired. And they helped me. They helped me see that there was a business in the rubbles that 20 cents on the dollar was too cheap for the bonds. 96 had been too expensive. So we reshuffled completely the position. We bought 
different bonds. We bought a lot more bonds, and we started working, or I started working on on the um, on the restructuring, thinking about what the company could become, what it had to do in terms of settling the 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 fraudulent, fixing the fraudulent accounting, settling the lawsuits that stem from the, uh, the the accounting frauds, shedding some assets, restructuring completely the liability uh, side of the balance sheet, and eventually emerging. So we emerged with a profit years later. But as I said in the book, it's uh, very much despite my initial position. Right. And can you, how important do you think it, it was at the time that there was sort of this institutional legacy of having, of the partners in this case, of having been at, at Drexel before, having been in the, in that industry for a while, how important would you say it was to have, I don't know, experience or networks or anything that, you know, those sort of qualitative? I'd say it was critical. It was critical in in two ways. One is the experience, the background that you're talking about. One of the partners was a bankruptcy lawyer. The other one was a banker at, at Drexel. So they certainly had uh, the experience and they had seen bankruptcies before. On top of that, MCI had been financed with junk bonds. I believe Drexel had banked the company, so they knew of this particular business within the WorldCom business. And that's a theme that is recurrent in my mind and, and in the book. Hopefully, it's something that I that I highlight, which is bankrupts or distressed or restructuring investing is very much a game of strategy. And in my mind, it's akin to a game of chess. And If I understand anything about chess players, it's that they play a lot. The more experience they have, the better they get. They study openings, right? You see, I saw that at least in the TV show Queen's Gambit, where they actually learn move by move what are the different openings, what are the different strategies, so they can recognize when the when the competitor, the other player, is making a move. They already think, oh, he's using the Italian, you know, handover of the queen to the, whatever it is, to the tower. And and therefore, his next moves are probably going to be this, this, and that. And that, to me, is both the thrill and the, the critical skill in distress is to be able to think about different scenarios and to, to anticipate what the, the adversary is, is going gonna, is gonna to do with his pieces. I think that's so interesting because the analogy, in, in the analogy you can play chess, a game of chess you can play over and over and you can limit the number of pieces or practice a specific setup. But... It seems to me your career, right, you just talked about telecom and then you have airlines, you have sort of, you know, these different industries that go into distress and you have to jump into something that's new without being able to, you know, practice specific setups. So you kind of have to learn on the go. So is it, does that make the business very much kind of an sort of an apprenticeship type of business? Or how would you learn all of the different moves that are possible and all of the things that a more experienced player could do that you're not even aware of as you, as you kind of learn the, the business? What you said, an apprenticeship. And I think you get better as an investor 
with years. I certainly think I was much better as a partner than I was in my in my first years, precisely because you know, a bankruptcy, and that's the very strength of the bankruptcy code in the U.S., but it's a fairly well-oiled machine. Chapter 11 is a very good structure. It has rules and precedents that you can follow. It doesn't mean that it can't be surprising and, and creative and have different routes and, and really, you know, offer different paths to a restructuring and an emergence. But it's a it's if you want to keep the analogy of the game the rules are pretty solid and well established so if you know them uh you can use them you can anticipate them and again you i think you're spot on in uh, in highlighting different industries i think you get much better as you get to know an industry because not only do you understand the dynamics of the industry better but you get to know the companies and you'd be surprised how many times you encounter a company in different forms, meaning it is born, it grows, it matures, maybe it does M&A, maybe it becomes very mature and more levered and more stressed, and it might go into bankruptcy and reemerge again, smaller, better, and again and again. So there's a life cycle to companies. We at Canyon really followed companies through their life cycles. There are companies that I traded in, in virtually every phase of their, of their life. And that, again, makes you a much better investor. That experience makes you a much better investor, I think. Yeah, you have that great quote in the, in the book where you said, an, an analyst who possesses historical and contextual knowledge of a corporation is akin to a chess master. So I highlighted that. I put it, I was like, this is, this is great. And you talked about it with the example of tobacco, but I'm sure it applies elsewhere. But can you talk a little bit? That's, that's true maybe if you're, if you have the luxury or the setup where you're a sector specialist and you can really take a deep dive versus from what I understand, you started off more as a, as a generalist. So can you kind of contrast the, the two styles a little bit and, and why did that change? Well, at Canyon, and I think it was the case for many hedge funds, we started as generalists because we were a small firm. And so we didn't have the luxury to have an energy and retail and airline specialist. But as we grew and as we also got into products that required industry specializations, like then we, we became largely specialized by one or two or three industries, depending on how large they are. And I really think it makes a difference. I remember in some bankruptcy cases, having as, as colleagues or as partners, because they also held bonds or loans, people who had just come into the situation, maybe analysts at a long-only shop that really either had uh, little knowledge of the industry or little knowledge of the bankruptcy process. And they just lost a ton of time. They lost a ton of my, they wasted right. a ton of my time, <laughs> incidentally. But it takes a lot more time to understand why the accounting is the way it is, why receivables are so large or so small, what you know, what the competitors are doing, who they are, what the vendors are going to do when you file, and why, what are critical suppliers, uh, how large a dip you, you need on the first day order, and, and those types of things. I mean, 
Were there any examples or is there an example that comes to mind where because you knew an industry or sector intimately, you would ultimately choose a different kind of security or a different position yourself differently or like make a different different move? How does that play out sort of in... in For sure, that practically? happened all the time. I don't know if I'll be able to figure out or remember a situation where it did happen, but absolutely, if you knew... A business very well and you thought it had a lot more upside than than other investors did, then you would probably position yourself in a more junior security. That's that that's a classic move. If you were unsure, maybe you stuck to the the first lien loan. Sometimes you you know, if it was a self solvent debtor, that doesn't happen uh, very much, but it it's conceivable. I mean Surely we saw it with the Hertz case where at the end of the day, equity ended up having having value and, you know, Knighthead helped by Apollo actually led the restructuring through the equity. So yes, I think if you have a high level of confidence in the business, in the industry, in the company, that will change your positioning radically. And so I'm not sure you're referring to Hertz. This was early last year. Or sort yes. of the last couple of uh, years, and I'm probably way out of my depth here. But was was the change in price of used cars was sort of this external factor? Was that was that? I don't know if you followed closely, but I'm curious why why that was such a different, you know, such a unique setup as you just. It was a unique setup because Hertz filed because of COVID. It was obviously the rental car business came to a complete. Halt as travel was was stopped everywhere, and that's when the the bankruptcy started and the restructuring uh, was initialized. In the year that followed, a few things happened. One, Hertz became a meme stock, so there was a wild gyration in the stock price. But it became at some point a solvent debtor, meaning a debtor that uh, whose equity actually had value which is very rare to the as you said the price of used car started climbing up probably because of shortages in in the supply chain and avis stock moved up dramatically and of course avis is a direct comp to where hertz would be valued upon emergence so it went from it went through two different restructuring plans where the value, the, the equity had no value. The equity commit contested the plan saying that there was value because one, look at Avis, the multiple expanded. And two, there was value because the meme stock phenomenon in itself had given it value. So, so that was to me so interesting. And in the end, after some 24-hour bidding and auction, process the the winner which was uh nighthead actually did give quite a bit of value to the stock price i think it was by some account six dollars a share uh full recovery to to the bonds and and then they went on to to emerge help me understand so 24-hour bidding process so what does that look like is sort of is this in a courtroom? Is this all remote? And also, is that is that kind of showdown or so, sort of is that, how often does something like that happen? Look, I don't know what happened 
for Hertz because I wasn't there. I've in 20 years, I've only been through a this kind of bidding once for a little company called Brookstone, where there were two bidders, a Chinese consortium and a US a US bidder. And they went into a room and yes, you give the court your your the result and the each party bids. And it was so interesting because the Chinese bidders essentially put in a bid that said whatever the other guy paid plus a dollar. And so they kept on coming back with this weird, I guess, very clever, but sort of bizarre bid. And they ended up winning the uh, winning the company. Like you said, there's a lot of sort of game theory and, and chess moves involved. But let's go back once. I, I want to learn more about what you did with the, the airlines, the equipment trust certificates, because that seemed to me like a moment where you didn't know much about the industry at first and your job was really to, correct me if I'm wrong, but really to, to drill down. So, so tell me how you solved that, that riddle. You're right. I didn't know anything about airlines. I knew that you get a ticket and you get on a flight. That, that's about it. I didn't even know the history of airlines in the U.S., which you know, is an industry that's very prone to bankruptcies. Growing up in France, and for you, I'm sure in Germany as well, there was one state airline and it was state owned and of course it wasn't going to go bankrupt but in the US it was it, it had been deregulated and so the, it was a very competitive business it's on top of that in an industry that's where it was difficult to make money because you have high fixed costs you need to fly the planes full and you have one input being oil that's very volatile. So all that, and you have very large capex. So all that makes for an industry that's that's that was pretty bad business. The nine eleven attack happened, and just like last year during COVID, travel for all practical purposes stopped. It stopped for a number of months, and when it restarted, business travel was down some thirty percent. And literally all U.S. airlines went bankrupt, but for Southwest. Southwest within five years, almost all the airlines had had gone bankrupt. So it was a it was a an industry that obviously we needed to cover at Canyon because there were a ton of bankruptcies, and that was the job. We were three or four analysts at the time, so the founders told me, "Why don't you?" look at it. Not because I knew anything, but just because it was either me or the next guy. So why not me? And I stumbled upon those bonds that had been sort of invented five or seven years before. And what they were is a sort of mortgage financing. So the airlines were borrowing money by securing or providing the aircraft as collateral. Now, contrary to the airline industry, aircraft are really great assets for creditors because they're liquid. You can sell them to other airlines. They have very long life, so they don't change or depreciate very much every year. And those bonds were supposed to be, you know, undestroyable because of that feature. They had the the aircraft as collateral and they were bought and held mostly by long-only institutions, pensions and insurance who really needed their investment grade rating. So when that rating dropped following a bankruptcy, 
they were interested in selling almost at any price. This was, again, this was a long time ago. This was 20 years ago, and the industry was, was really fractured into people who knew how to do bankruptcy and distressed investing and people who didn't know or didn't want to. That dichotomy was where we could make money, where we could exploit an arbitrage. So we bought, or I bought, lots of bonds at prices that were below the price of the aircraft. And I learned, you know, one by one what the aircraft were, what routes they flew, how much they were worth, what other airlines could buy them, what the process was to repossess them and uh, remarket them. And ended up being really the first industry that I kind of mastered and allowed me to have my own trades, my own investments, and and progress towards being a a portfolio manager. So what does the timeline for something like that look like? Because I always wonder, right, something happens, there's an event, this industry goes from uh, boom to bust, right, travel is down, and things sort of, I wonder how quickly do these things unfold, since if you had to learn everything about not only the securities, but also the underlying collateral, the different airline, airplanes, their their value, and kind of establish contacts, start reading, how long was it feasible for you to do all of that deep work before you had to make decisions? Or how does that, how does that process of research versus... So the bonds dropped within days. And they stayed down for months or years. So that lad, lag, that time lapse allowed me to really gain knowledge. But certainly the first trades were small or smallish and tentative because I, I didn't know anything. And to be fair, nobody knew anything. This was the first time that those structures went through not only a bankruptcy, but a sort of uh, industry-wide bankruptcy. So the it was a, a brand new game that everybody was learning at the same time. So in that respect, respect, I was just very lucky. And it went to the court, right? I mean, just walk me through how that how that trade ultimately. What went the trade that went through the court is the one with United, because so typically there's a section of the bankruptcy code that that's called section 1110 that says that for those bonds either after bankruptcy either the airline pays you bondholder and continues to to use the planes or if they don't pay you you the bondholder are able to repossess the planes and sell them except that united which had a large number of planes under those structures took a very aggressive route of saying that they would do neither. So they would <laughs> not pay and they would not allow bondholders to repossess the planes under a very tenuous theory that the bondholders had colluded against them and which legal allegation in the end collapsed. But it took three years, I, I, I think, two or three years for the court to render the judgment that in fact, United had to either pay or surrender the planes. In the meantime, we renegotiated the leases with United one by one um, at a much lower lease rate to continue receiving payments. So it really mattered what price you paid on the bonds. And, and that went on for a very long time. Must have felt good to, uh, to finally get paid on those. It was it was incredible when that when that legal opinion came out. 
So you alluded to it a little bit earlier, right? And, and then you said the at that time, a lot of the sellers or forced sellers sort of didn't know or couldn't hold those bonds to bankruptcy, didn't want to deal with it. And in the book, too, you made sort of the the point that kind of the, the game of distress has changed. So how how is distressed or as an as an industry, as a strategy different today from from when you started in the business? It's changed a lot in a lot of ways, but one of the ways is exactly what you said, which is 20 years ago, a lot of the bondholders or loan holders simply did not have the luxury of holding an instrument that was below investment grade or bankrupt and non-performing. And if that happened, they were automatic forced sellers. And of course, that provided ample opportunities for hedge funds to make money. And I think it's that 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 arbitrage is by and large gone. If I think of the the very the very big institutions in corporate bonds today, from PIMCO to WAMCO to, you know, all the sort of stayed long only money, they know how to do distressed. They've done it many times. They have specialists. They have pockets where they can hold those bonds. You see their names in in bankruptcies, and there are very astute investors, and they're very experienced investors now. So they certainly wouldn't hit the sell button at the first hiccup. And with that went away a very large source of profit for hedge funds. Right. So I was going to ask, what does that mean for somebody who either runs a distressed hedge fund or is interested in the business, is curious, right? maybe reads your book and says, oh, I'd love to do that. This sounds like a really interesting, uh, challenging game and maybe very profitable too. But what, what does that mean for somebody who is still active in the market? But what do you do instead? Or how do you navigate I don't think that? you do anything instead. I think it's it's harder. Uh, it's harder for many reasons. One is because of, of that phenomenon. Traders, investors are, are better informed and it's a, it's a more plain level field, playing level field. Two, there are many more hedge funds. So obviously it's a more competitive environment. And with with that, not only are there more hedge funds, but there are fewer distressed opportunities, by which I mean you know, if you think of last year as being the biggest bankruptcy year since 2008, there were lots of bankruptcies in number, but the size of those bankruptcies were was small. So the biggest bankruptcy last year was uh, Hertz, which was only 26 billion. If you compare that to the biggest bankruptcy in 2008, which was Lehman, at 600 billion, it gives you a sense of scale and size. And in the meantime, so the, the on the bankruptcy size, there are fewer and they're smaller. On the hedge fund side, there are many more and they are bigger. On the competitive side, it's more competitive. So you, you know, put this in the mix and shake it and you have an industry that's uh, where it's harder to compete. It's harder to, to beat the market. That's a, it doesn't mean that it's still, it's, it's, not a an interesting thrilling business i think it it still is it requires a lot of expertise a lot of conviction a lot of creativity maybe more than than before but i think it's still for for anyone who reads the book or hears us i for me it was an incredibly exciting business 
Right. Let's go back to a particularly exciting time, which sort of 2008 plus or minus and you talk about in the book how again it's sort of this time of there's feeling terrible about all the things that happened in in the portfolio maybe and so I'd love to know there's I feel like there's this sort of ambiguity because on the one hand things sell off on the other hand it sort of opens up this maybe golden pocket of opportunity for for doing things what was that what was it like to you know those those months as an as an investor to to live through that and how did you think about what was transpiring? I know what you mean, that it should be both feelings, but let me tell you, there was no excitement. It was pure pain. I suppose it would have been excited if you started uh, anew, if you opened a hedge fund right in 2008 with cash and sort of open up to that immense, you know, ocean of opportunities. But it wasn't that. It wasn't that for me. It wasn't that for Canyon. It wasn't that for for hedge funds that had been in business for a while. And by the way, even if you wanted to open a hedge fund, I doubt there would be any investor giving you money at the time. It was just awful. It was um, so painful to lose so much money. It was debilitating. It really was. It was the not only that, but the markets were by and large frozen. So for a large chunk of the year in the second half of 08 and, and at least the first quarter of 2009, things just didn't trade. So you came into the office and really most of the job was to try to optimize the portfolio and think, well, this you know, piece of due of a bond that I hold might be not as good as this other slightly better piece of do that I hold and let me try to swap them. And you'd leave orders with traders who would sit on them for days because the bid ask were 20, 30, 40 points. There, were, there really was no market. So that was, that was incredibly frustrating. And it turned out that the best thing we could do, that we did do, was to hold on, was not to sell. That really was the name of the game. People who were able to hold on to their to their assets saw a huge upswing in 2009 that was not sufficient to make up for the losses of 2008, but pretty close. Uh, so the pendulum swung, you know, very violently one way in 2008 and the opposite way in 2009. So if you could retain your investors and keep your keep your investments and your assets that was really the entire strategy got it just just make it to the other side yep so we've been sort of in a long bull market and i'm sure there's a whole generation of people who've never gone through through that experience what what would be your advice about sort of dealing with kind of a setback that doesn't, you know, where, where stocks don't snap back within a, a month or two and everything goes goes back to, to normal, sort of sitting through kind of this prolonged drawdown. Have you have you found anything that, that works for you? How do, how do you, you know, just deal with it and come out of it mentally? The, look, I think it gets easier with time. Certainly in 08, I had 
no perspective and it was I was flat out depressed for a fair, for a long time it's hard not to take it personally you do in a way I think you should because that's your job and that's the money of other other people other institutions and it's it's a serious job right I know hedge fund obviously hedge fund managers make a lot of money for themselves but they do invest for large chunks of people and it's a, one should be responsible about you know about the 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 weight that you you carry so i guess one way to look at it is that you've lost money but so did everyone else but it's, it's you know provides some consolation it's very limited i think the better way to look at it is is that losses will happen and it's part of the job in that took me a long time to realize but i think if your process is good then the outcome has a certain amount of luck or macro factors that you can't control if your process is bad then that is a terrible then you're flat out a bad investor but if the process is good and the the outcome is is bad it can be because of bad luck or or tough macro factors that also can can help but you know losing money is is part of the job so over the years i learned that to just deal with it with less emotions it ends up being a really critical and helpful skill for life you know being resilient and thinking of failure as just the flip side of a winning trade Yeah, I feel like And it's uh, it's something I'm sorry to interrupt you something that I wanted to spend enough time on in the book because I feel like most hedge fund books are all about the winning trade and how genius the hedge fund manager is and how incredible his uh, thinking is and he's sort of a lion preying on a gazelle in the the African savanna and he just you know waits for the right mo- moment and goes for the kill. Yeah, maybe there's some of that, but there's lots and lots of times where where we lose money. Lots of time. Yeah, no, I I agree. I I thought that was a really, I want to say a strong part of the book, but I also thought it was just sort of brave on a personal level to admit that because it's I think as you said, often often sort of maybe people pretend that it's not not painful or they don't like to admit it and don't like to be vulnerable in that in that way. So I really enjoyed that part of the book. I thought it was very eye-opening hopefully to others i think it makes for good stories in the media and it's either one or the other a hedge fund is either a you know a, a rising star genius and they've only made money or there's the story of the debacle disaster you know the hedge fund folding and that makes for a sensational story too but i think the reality of the job on a daily basis is that you're going to lose money that it is unavoidable and and that's okay what matters is that you make more hopefully a lot more than you lose and that you show up the next day you know wanting to make money and and make it right i think that was sort of one of those sections in the book where i stopped and like underlined and i was like okay this is uh this is real talk i i do appreciate that and it's rare now let's talk about a few years later 
the crisis is sort of over and you get tasked to build a new business, a sort of a structured credit business, CLOs, and have to raise money, you're not on your own, but you're sort of responsible for this. So I'm just curious, tell me about the experience of, of building a new business, raising capital, just doing all of that. That was a new adventure for me because there's the investing and then there's the business of investing, which is a different matter. There, it had to do with strategy, with messaging. What is your competitive advantage? How do you sell to investors? How do you stand out from your competitors? How do you put together a nice pitch and raise money? How do you lead and manage a team? That was new as well. And I I really enjoyed that. I thought that was great fun. That was very new to be responsible for a business, not only the investing part in the portfolio, but also the capital raising and the follow-up with, with investors. I thought that was that was that kept me busy and interested for many years. You're saying it, it, it was fun. In, in the book, it seemed like, at least in the beginning, it was also just a lot of, a lot of pitching, a lot of maybes or no responses. I, the, the people that I know, I think, on the investment side are, so I, I find they're often disillusioned by the capital raising process just because there's so much you have to, to do. You know, the, the, the ratio of, of pitches to actually invested dollars maybe always seems off. So I'm just curious. What was your experience there? Did it get better over time? Any anything that you that you learned or that you would do differently if you had to start all over again? No, my experience is the same. For for you know, ten pitches you get one investor, if that, especially in the beginning. So it's frustrating and you know, when I say it was great fun, I suppose not in a ha ha ha, you know moment but fun as in there are ups there are downs you think you got you got your first one and you didn't you think the other one is close and he's nowhere close then you have an excellent meeting the next one they fall asleep you know it's uh it's it's just like life in in general you have very exciting moments and you have moments of of deep despair because you've You've repeated yourself, for, you know, in five meetings every day over 20 days, and you have no idea if you raised the, the first dollar. So my experience was, was the same. I think what I liked is, again, that you have to use your imagination. You have to be, you have to listen and sort of hear where you could or should take the, the pitch. That was, that was new to me, and I, I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, no, I can, I can tell. So it's sort of this exciting journey, even though not every meeting is necessarily uh, Oh, fun. God, not even close. I've had, and again, you know, that's something that I wanted uh, to tell as stories, but I've had some god-awful meetings where you just, you just want to leave and just say, all right, time out. Let's just be honest. You guys are not interested. I don't want to tell the story anymore. <laughs> Let's just have a coffee and move on. But you do have to go through the motions. You have to be a good soldier and just just keep doing it. Yeah, exactly. The one I loved the most was the, I mean, there's obviously a lot of travel involved, but one is, uh, I guess, smaller city in Paris. And the other one is where people fell asleep. And I'm just curious how to do, 
if, if you ever think back to the low point, was there ever a moment when you doubted whether it was going to happen coming out of a meeting, you know, the project as a whole? Was it ever so demoralizing or was it just? I don't think I ever thought I'm not going to get there. I'm, I'm not going to raise any money or later on for this special vehicle that, that I did for, for the CLO. I'm not going to be able to to raise money but there are there are definitely moments where you think i have now reached a low point where you go to a meeting and clearly they sent a junior person who is there to be educated has no ability to deliver uh, a penny let alone a hundred million dollars and uh, you just have to pretend <laughs> you just have to go on and you know it was fun it's you know what's funny is that as I'm trying to promote this book I'm actually doing quite a few panels and public speaking and podcasts and I gotta say it's the same thing it's who same knows thing. <laughs> it's the same thing you go to a meeting thinking Wow, this uh, this panel about the women in hedge funds should I I really I really did sell that. I think I'm going to have a good audience and you have nine people staring at you <laughs> or you do a podcast and really I have no idea if anyone is listening on the other end. That is You just have to do it because you enjoy it. No, that's that's true, but I wanted to ask about something else, but let's let's stay on this this panel for a moment because you talk a lot of in the book rightfully so about sort of the I guess the the gender imbalance in in hedge funds and what was your experience I guess in in general and why why do you think hedge funds are sort of you know there's uniquely few women I guess in senior positions in hedge funds versus a lot of other investment or professional services type areas Look, my experience was to be the only one in 20 years especially as I became more senior but in 20 years I only met one other female partner who was doing distressed and she's a friend of mine there are a few more now so it was it was i felt isolated at times i felt treated differently at times but on the other hand the i have to recognize i was very lucky at the end of the day Canyon was a great place for me. I had a terrific career. I made a lot of money and they promoted me to partner. So I was very lucky when I finally retired. It, it really, I started reflecting uh, on my career and really realizing how rare women were. And it upset me. I have to say that it hadn't upset me in any particular way in my 20 years of career because I was so solely focused on performing for my firm and for our investors. So I, I really didn't stop to to really think about it or to feel in any particular way or to fight that battle. I mean, my job was plenty to keep me busy without taking on the, the you know, the battle of, of having more women around me. But when I retired, obviously it became a lot easier because I didn't have an axe to grind. I didn't have a job to protect and I could be very vocal. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's exactly what I did. And, and writing the book was my way of trying to, to provide an example of a woman who had a great, uh, a great career and had tons of fun doing it. And, 
you know, if I inspire one woman out there to to try their luck at hedge funds, then I think that that was that was worth it. And why that is that there are uh, few women in hedge funds as opposed to other businesses, investment banking or sales and trading on the, or, or really any function on the sell side. It's interesting. I think part of it is because the business is newer, so it's less institutionalized. I think as companies become bigger, they tend to have a well-established HR and those people are paid to look at those uh, things, including diversity and inclusion. But hedge funds were sort of more entrepreneurial, VC type of business. The interesting thing is they're really not anymore. They have become institutionalized, but they haven't changed. It's been so profitable for so long that I think, you know, the insiders have not needed any change. It's only now that limited partners are finally insisting on diversity that I think it will change. Yeah, let's let's hope so. You talked about this sort of maturing process of the industry, and, and obviously Canyon was one example, right, of where you started with a small team, small AUM, and it became a much bigger business. But I guess what do you what is what does that mean for somebody who enters the business or how do you think about I think before you mentioned the power balances within within a firm and kind of functions that gain and lose in importance I'm just curious what do you what do you think are the implications of hedge funds having become a massive massive and mature industry One is it's hard one implication is that it's harder to beat the market when you sort of become the market another is that the as you said, the structure of a hedge fund is is different. It's less scrappy. It's less you know a spirit of the wild frontier with a few guys fighting to survive, and more of a institutional atmosphere with I suppose a fair amount of office politics and office strategy. The good and the bad. I mean, a lot more job safety and security, I suppose, but also a lot more inertia. And the last thing I would say, which I think was where you were going, is to me a bit of a or or a large change in the value of different functions, meaning that 10, 20 years ago, the investment team was clearly the engine that drove investors in. It was performance and performance only. And I think it's a lot, a lot less true today. I think investors put their money with Canyon or any of those large funds less because of performance and outperformance, because that's become a, a lot rarer, a lot less systematic, and more because of the brand, because of the story, because of good compliance, because of good investor relations, re- good reporting, all those functions are not the investment team. Those functions are business development, business strategy, investor relations, marketing, those soft functions, those cost centers where typically you find a lot more women. The the interesting point is that the money, the compensation still goes to the investment team. When in fact, in my mind, I've observed a real shift in in the value that's provided by the investment team versus the marketing team. Yeah, I, I feel like maybe you have a, a unique perspective on it because you've been both 
part of the investment team, but you've also built a new new business. And you sort of, I think the book, something I enjoyed really about it is you give a perspective both on investing and like you said, the, the business of investing and everything that comes with it. Tell me about pitching, right? You mentioned you obviously did a lot of pitches to raise capital, but as an analyst, you sort of have to go through a similar process of communicating your idea internally and get attention, compete for capital. What have you learned about pitching? That's a good point. I think most young professionals and students that I meet think that the job is all about finding the investment idea. And to me, that's part of the job. It might even be the smallest part of the job. What matters is you sell your idea to your partners, the people who will put capital behind your idea, because this is not the Stanford Investment Club anymore. Having a great idea with not, without capital is not going to get you anywhere. So pitching, selling is really the crux of the issue, particularly when capital is constrained, right? You don't have an infinite amount. And so the money that doesn't, doesn't go to your investment idea will go to somebody else's. I find that there are different styles that some people are aggressive, some people are analytical, some people are logical, some people go for the kill in the first pitch, some are sort of, they, they go incrementally, they, you know, I was, that was more my style of asking for, you know, a certain amount of, of capital allocation and then increasing my conviction and asking for more, more money, or maybe it's because I never thought there was enough money in the you know, in the first round for my idea. So the I, I guess what I'm getting at is there's not one way to pitch and you know you you find and develop your style as as you go on. Yeah, that uh makes sense. I I wonder if you as you move to a portfolio manager role but you started building out your your own team and eventually you found yourself just with analysts who were sort of deeper in certain industries and I think I've heard you before that for example you had somebody covering software and you weren't really that deep in in software as a personally but you still had to make decisions based on that analyst's recommendations and so I'm wondering how at that point how you thought about both training them and kind of what you'd learn and the, the, all of the different chess moves that were important, but also listening to them, kind of weighing the different personalities and pitching styles of your analysts and, and how you should interpret. How, how, do you, how do you navigate that as a, as a portfolio manager from the other side? I think you really have to listen and, and try to recognize what are the strengths and, and weaknesses of each analyst. In, in the case of tech and software and hardware, I, I really didn't understand very much about it. And the education was very much from my analyst to me rather than the other way around. And that's fine. My role was to help him uh, develop his ideas and, and, you know, encourage his trades and provide experience where I had it which was more in his for as as far as his industry was uh, concerned it was much more on the on the structuring and the capital structure side and much less on the on the asset side and i think that's fine i think that works well i don't you know i i don't need to be the expert on on everything certainly i wasn't far from it and some of my analysts were you know they they had a higher risk tolerance some had a lower risk tolerance so Again, it works well as you 
develop relationship and trust and learn who does what and how they do it and learn their style and they learn yours. That at the end of the day, people are really the most important resource of hedge funds. So the 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 better you uh, manage that, the the better returns you're going to get. The book is done. You're no longer working 100 hours a, uh, a week. What's what's your life now? My life is one of enjoyment. I do have board seats. So I'm mm-hmm. a director on some companies and I enjoy that quite a bit. And then the rest of the time, I, you know, I play polo. I, I pitch my book to some nine students here and there. And I generally have a good time. That's awesome. I enjoyed the book. I really wanted to to help you get the word out. This was a lot of fun. And where can people learn more about you? What's your preferred platform or where, where do you where you active? Uh, I have my own website, which I did myself. So you'll see it's it's pretty, uh, it's in pretty bad shape. Twitter, LinkedIn, and the book is on Amazon. Perfect. We'll link to all of that. This was so much fun. I, I really enjoyed it. And, and thank you so much, Dominique. And hope you have a good rest of your stay in, in Paris and that the rain uh, is going to subside soon. Thank you so much for having me.